you would open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. The text is uh, correct in the worship guide, but the reference is, is wrong there. But uh, you can find it in the, refer- in the uh, worship guide or open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, just a couple things to let you know. Uh, so it's not a distraction. Yes, I'm wearing glasses. No, I usually don't wear glasses, but I had an eye infection this week, and, and so I can't wear my contacts, but don't let that uh, distract you this morning. Uh, secondly, i let you know that uh, Dr. Weldon has been on vacation this week, and he is uh, due back into the office uh, first thing uh, tomorrow morning, so uh, if you need him, he'll be available for you uh, tomorrow morning. I've uh, been thinking, as I've been thinking about uh, preaching you know, there's been an awful lot going on here at the church for the last several months, and, and uh, we've been as busy as I can remember being in the four years that we've that I've been here. And and a uh, little bit afraid that if you lose sight, uh, you can become kind of disoriented of where we are and what we're all about. And and so today, I want us to uh, uh, get back to some of the basics and and uh, make sure that we are all on good, solid ground. So keep that in mind as we come together around God's Word, looking at uh, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And remember, this is the Word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also appear appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Let's pray together. Father, as we come this morning, we ask that your spirit would open our minds and our hearts, and we see glorious truths in this portion of your holy gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Four or five years ago, I had been in uh, the living room talking with my son, Jonathan. We'd been watching a little TV, and he started to, to leave the room. And as he was walking out of the room, it's about the time he got to the door, I said, Oh, and by the way, Jonathan... He said, yes, Dad, I know, and I love you too. And that did my heart a lot of good, because I wanted Jonathan to always know that his dad loves him. It's important that he always knows that, that when he succeeds, that he's loved by his father. When he fails, he's loved by his father. When he sins, that he's loved by his father. And when he's encouraging others, that he's loved by his father. And, and that uh, there's nothing that he can do that's going to make me love him more or less. I've already decided that I'm going to love him no matter what. And his behavior does not influence my love for him at all. It's important that we understand this as Christians because that's the message that, that God is giving to us over and over throughout Scripture. In fact, we already saw one example of it this morning. Pull your worship guides back out and, and go back to the, uh, the Ten Commandments. By the way, uh, Pastor Pointer whispered to me right before I got up here. He said, let them know that uh, I, I, I 
also do not believe in coveting and, and uh, that he supports all ten of the Ten Commandments. So uh, we already knew that, Paul, but thank you for reinforcing that. All right, now back to, back to my point here. The Ten Commandments do not begin, you shall have no other gods before me. That's not where they begin. They begin with the preamble where it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. See, it's, it's there that, that what we learn is that the Ten Commandments do not tell us what we need to do to get God to love us. The Ten Commandments tell us how we respond to a loving God. There's a big difference there. And, and folks, what it is is that that's grace. And grace always comes first. And grace always comes first as God deals with his people. You know, the, the world, for the most part, they do not understand that. They think the Christian life is a life about us trying to do things to, to win God's favor. And nothing's further from the truth. Grace always comes first. Christ died for our sins, we're told in Romans 5. When? While we were still enemies with God. You see, grace always comes first. Every other religion in the world tries to do things to please their God so that they might have some sort of favorable outcome in that relationship. But Christianity turns that idea upside down and says, no, that's not it at all. That's not it at all. God is always reminding us throughout the Bible that, that his love comes first. We see it here in the Ten Commandments. We see it in, in the uh, different covenants that, that God makes throughout the Old Testament. We see it in the exodus out of Egypt, and we see it as the people go into the promised land 40 years later. We see it personified in Jesus Christ himself. And we see it throughout the epistles as those letters are written to the churches. And we see it right here in our text this morning. Remember it this way. The indicative always precedes the imperative. The indicative, what God is doing, has done, or, or uh, will do, always precedes the imperative, what God would have us to do. What God commands us to do, the imperative, will always follow the indicative. Let's, let's take a look at how we see this in our text this morning. In verse 1, it starts off, If then you have been raised with Christ. Now, that's not really a question. Uh, if you have the NIV in front of you, you have a little bit better translation where it says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. And, and that's the way we should, should read it. Since we've been raised with Christ. So that's our indicative statement. We are people that have been raised with Christ. This is actually the, the call to worship that, that Mark had picked out last week uh, on Easter Sunday. Because we have been raised with Christ. That's who we are as believers. God has done that. He has allowed us to share in Christ's resurrection. And since we have been raised with Christ... Then Paul says after that, this is what you should do. Because grace always comes first. 
Paul has spent most of chapter 2 talking about the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. And and here in in chapter 3, he starts off by telling us that we are raised with Christ. Everything that that Paul is going to be writing about after uh, this opening statement are, are the imperatives. And they're conditional upon the indicative that we have been raised with Christ. And, and there's real benefits for us as it concerns being raised with Christ. And I want us to look at just a few of them. There's many of them. We're not going to take time to look at all. Let's just look at a few of them this morning. The first thing I want you to know when you think about what does it mean to be raised with Christ is that we have a real assurance of our salvation. And that's a glorious truth to hold on to. We have a real assurance of our salvation. We should never have a doubt about where we stand with Christ. Again, it's Christ who's doing the work, and, and then he includes us in the accomplishments. And, and what could be more assuring than the words that we read in Romans 8, beginning in verse 31, when we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, here it is, who was raised. Remember, we were raised with Christ. Who is it at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. What a benefit to know that our salvation is secure. We can always be assured of that. So benefit one is, is the, that our salvation is assured. The second benefit we see from being raised with Christ is that God actually promises a whole lot more than just being saved from hell, but he, he promises to save us to something that's quite spectacular. He saves us to be his children. We are heirs of God himself. Again, when Paul was writing to the church in in Galatia this time, we read, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. And then a little bit later he says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, 
born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has, spent the spirit, has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a glorious benefit to being raised with Christ. So we have the assurance of salvation. We, we are heirs with Christ. And the last thing I want us to consider, this verse touched on also, is that we who are raised with Christ are empowered, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit himself. We can be sure that even when we don't think we can press on anymore, the Spirit is there interceding on our behalf. He fights for us even when we don't even know that we're supposed to be fighting. He comforts us when we're hurting. He rebukes us when we need to be rebuked. You know, being raised with Christ is the highlight of the Christian life here on earth. When we say we've been raised with Christ, we're saying that all that is Christ is also ours. And that's good news. And that's, that's grace at its very finest. And grace always comes first. All right, so there's the indicative. It tells us in our text that we have been raised with Christ. What are the imperatives here in our text? What's our, our response to what Christ has already done? Well, there's three of them that Paul lists for us here in these first five verses. Verse 1 tells us that we are to seek the things that are above. Verse 2 says that to, we're to set our minds on the things above. And finally, in verse 5, we're, to, we're told to put to death what is earthly in you. So let's look at these three imperatives for, for a moment. First, seek the things that are above. The, the, the NIV, I think, translates this, set your hearts on the things above. Both of these statements give us the idea that, that we're to earnestly go after the things that are above. It's, it's, it's in a very important challenge that Paul is giving to us here. What kind of things do you you put your heart into? I mean, really put your heart into. Are they the things of heaven? In Matthew chapter 6, when, when Christ was preaching that famous Sermon on the Mount, he said to us, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is your treasure? Where is your heart? What do you value the very most in life? For some of you, your treasure is your status, or maybe your job title. For others, it might be your children or your grandchildren. It could be your house 
or to be being sure that that you're liked by many people. It might be your reputation. Whatever it is, if it's not found in heaven, it's a fading treasure nonetheless. Now, I hate to tell you that, but if you treasure anything more than Jesus Christ himself, then all you have is fool's gold, and it's not worth anything. Look back a couple of chapters with me to, to chapter 1 here in Colossians. This is why Jesus is such a treasure for us. Beginning in verse 15, he says, he, talking about Christ, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Now, friends, that's a lasting treasure. That's a worthy treasure. That is a treasure that we should seek after. Seek the things of heaven. Seek Jesus Christ. We do this by being sure that our interests are centered on Christ's interest and not of the things of this world. Our attitudes, our ambitions, our actions, and our whole outlook in life are modeled to our relationship with Christ. We are to be sure that we are pursuing the Christian life the best we can each and every day. Friends, that the, the word is seek the things above. Secondly, almost similarly, Paul tells us that we should set our minds on the things above. If the seeking the things above is pursuing Christ and the Christian life, then setting our minds on the things above means we are to give these things a very large place in our thinking. I'm not saying that we should spend all of our time only thinking about heaven and not ever thinking about life here on earth. Paul addresses that in the next few verses here in, in verses 2 through 4. We're not to withdraw ourselves from all the activities of this world and do nothing but contemplate uh, heaven and eternity. That's not what I'm saying. What Paul is saying here in these verses is that it makes it quite clear that Christians are, are to maintain normal relationships in the world, but we have a different mindset as we go about the process. From now on, the Christian will see everything in light and against the background of eternity. You will no longer live as if this world was all that mattered. We will see that this world against the background of a much larger world, a much larger eternity. 
That's the mindset we're called to have as people that have been raised with Christ. Setting our minds on things above means more than uh, just thinking about heavenly things. It means that we are to be sure that, that our inner nature is, is bent towards the things of heaven. The things that are upon uh, earth are, are important, but they don't last. Things like wealth and worldly honor and power and pleasures and, and so forth. To make those things our goals in life, that's, that's not worthwhile. That's not what we're called to do as Christians. There's a, uh, a theologian, Barclay, that tells us that, that we should always consider ourselves being much like a pilgrim. The pilgrim is not to despise the comforts which he may meet with by the way, but he is to tarry, but he's not to tarry among them or leave them with regret. You understand it, folks? We're pilgrims in this world. We're, we're passing through. And the things of, these wor- of this world is not what we should be setting our hearts on and constantly grabbing after. Because we're just passing through here. Our mind should be set on eternity. Finally, the last thing I want us to look at this morning is what Paul addresses in verse 5. It's that thing that none of us want to really ever talk much about. But he's, Paul tells us that we're to put to death what is earthly in you. We are to kill the sin that is within us. The 17th century Puritan John Owen called it the mortification of sin. We need to put to death the sin in our life. And we need to be serious about it. And we need to go about it with the mindset of we are going to kill the sin in our life. You know, all of us, on one level or another, are captivated by some sort of sin. It's part of being human. And sometimes we get into the thinking that these little pet sins that we have, well, they're really not all that bad. They're not going to mess me up too much, I don't think. But the reality of it is, they are all that bad. Sin at its very nature is deceitful. And Paul Tripp says, do you know who your sin deceives the most? It's you. And my sin deceives me the most. Jeremiah 17 tells us, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? We need to be on guard to kill the sin in our lives. You see, at the very core of your sin and my sin is this very simple truth. Your sin wants to destroy you. And if you leave it unchecked, that's exactly what it will do. It, if you leave it unchecked, it will grow in your life like weeds in a flower bed. And, and I don't like doing, working out in the yard, and I, I certainly don't like weeding the flower bed. But every time I do, 
And if my boys are with me, they're so tired of me always talking about this. But, you know, it's just such a perfect parallel for getting rid of the sin in our lives. Several years ago, we were having company come over one night, and I had not taken care of the flower bed like I needed to, and there was weeds everywhere. And I made the very bad choice of deciding, I don't have time to get take care of this like I need to, but I do have three bales of pine straw that I can just throw on top of it. And so, you know, that's what I did. And sometimes that's what we try to do in our lives, right? We, we, we just try to, to cover up our sin a little bit so that it just doesn't look so bad. Uh, sometimes when we go to deal with the sin in our lives, we, we just kind of grab at the very top and pull, pull it out a little bit, and, and it feels a little bit better and it looks a little bit better. But what's the problem when you weed a, a, a garden like that? It's going to come right back, right? It's going to come right back. So, so when I'm out there weeding the flower bed, the, the only way to really do it right is to, to, to dig in deep and really pull up the roots. And you know, sometimes when you do that, it hurts. And, and it's painful to, to, to get that weed all the way out of the, the flower bed. The same is true with pulling out the sin in our life. Sometimes we have to go really deep, and when we do, it hurts. But that's the only way to put to death the sin in our life. See, sin, it's a snare. Sin is a trap. Sin is deceitful. Sin is relentless in its pursuit after you. You must be relentless in your desire to kill the sin in your life. So those are the imperatives. We're being told here to to seek the things above, to set our minds on the things above, and to put to death the sin in our life. You know, trying to chase after these three imperatives on our own and on our own strength would mean certain frustration and, and we'd never be able to accomplish it. And for some of you, you try to do these imperatives on your own, but that's not the way Christ ever intended. If you tried to follow these uh, imperatives uh, without understanding God's love that precedes it, you're always going to be frustrated, for it's impossible to do these things without the love of Christ. You know, that's, that's the message of the gospel itself. So if you're tired of, of trying to chase after and, and earn God's love, then let me tell you, stop trying. That's not the way God works. That's not the message of the gospel. The message proclaims that Christ died for your sin, and there's never anything you can do to make him love you. He's already decided that he's going to love you. Embrace him as your Lord and Savior today if you never have. Quit trying to do more so that maybe he'll save you. That's not how the gospel of grace works. Those of you that are already in Christ, often there's this battle, this temptation that that we need to do more because we want to make sure that, that God is going to be pleased with us today. 
Again, let me encourage you. That's not the way God works. He already loves you. Let your life reflect that you're loved by God by fulfilling what he's called you to do. You see, the indicative always precedes the imperatives. And grace always comes first. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for today. I thank you that we can gather here in your house and we can worship. We can worship a God who loves us. We don't have to come here and try to obtain your favor, but our worship is nothing more than our response back to a loving God. Father, be with us today as surely by lunchtime we're going to be fighting the temptation to think we need to earn your love. Certainly by the middle of the week, Lord, be with us today and each day of this week that we will constantly fall back on the good news of the gospel and know that we are loved unconditionally by you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.